Encryption enables us to pay for things online, verify our identity, and keep our communications private. It's the topic of our episode today. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. All right, Dave, our question for today, what is encryption? Encryption is a way of scrambling information so that only the intended party can descramble it. So it's a way of scrambling information in a reversible way. But the way that we scramble it has to be sophisticated enough that it can only be descrambled with some effort or with some added information that we already have so that not just anybody can descramble it. It can't be so easy to descramble that somebody who wanted to get your credit card between the time that you sent it and the person who's going to process it received it, or the machine rather, was able to intercept it and then easily figure out what it was. So we have to do it in a sophisticated way. We have to scramble things in a way that only somebody with some additional information, which we call a key usually, can descramble it. So encryption is really a a way to keep private information private. Yeah, and there's a lot of things we want to keep private. You know, sometimes we think about this word privacy as something only for people who are doing something wrong or somebody who's doing something top secret. But actually, you need privacy and secrecy all the time. Because every time you do an online transaction where you pay for something, right, you're transmitting details about yourself. Maybe you're transmitting your credit card number. Maybe you're transmitting your social security number. Maybe you're transmitting your bank account information. You don't want a third party between you and the thing that you're actually purchasing from having access to any of that information. So we all need secrecy and privacy all the time. But it goes beyond that. There's also other things we want to keep secret. Personal details about ourselves, our medical records, our communications with a loved one that are about uh, personal topics. All the time we have information that we need secret, including a lot of our work, right? We have trade secrets. We have private communications that go on at work. So it actually turns out that most of the things that we do, we probably want to have encrypted and therefore private just to us. So does encryption happen only when information is being sent somewhere or is it are things encrypted on our individual computers? Yeah, it's both. So actually we'll encrypt information when we want to send it to another person or another entity. It could be a machine. But oftentimes we'll also encrypt things on our own computers. In fact, modern operating systems include what's called whole disk encryption, which is the option to have every piece of information on your hard drive encrypted all the time. That way, if somebody else gets access to your computer and they don't have your password, they can't get access to any of the information on your computer. How do you know if a website is encrypted or not? So you'll see a little lock icon in most web browsers in the address bar when the website is using HTTPS. And we talked about HTTP versus HTTPS in our prior episode on how the web works. But what that basically indicates to you is your communication with that web server is going over a secure encrypted connection. So you never want to be giving away your private information, your credit card information to a website that doesn't have that little lock icon because that means that your information is just being sent in plain text. And if there was an intermediary between you 
and the web server, they could actually read everything you're sending. And it's not that hard to do. It's actually pretty easy to read plain text packets and intercept them on the internet. So that little S is really important. The S in HTTPS is really important. And the lock icon that you see that when you're doing anything that's important on the web is really important. So how does encryption actually work? How is it done? Encryption is done using pretty sophisticated mathematical algorithms that I'm not really an expert on, and they're also well beyond the scope of our podcast. But they're mathematical algorithms that a lot of research and a lot of careful consideration and testing has gone into, at least any of the good ones. And they do come up with new encryption algorithms over time. So we're not using the same encryption algorithms that were originally invented in the 60s and 70s. Most of those very old encryption algorithms have actually been broken in one way or another. And so those older algorithms, we are no longer considered secure because there's a way of descrambling them without having the key. Now, all of these algorithms have a key. A key is some piece of information that we can use to uh, act as a starter, like a substrate for doing both the encrypting element and also doing the decrypting side. And so we need to have the key if we actually want to decrypt whatever we encrypted using the key. So uh, you might say this sounds like a problem, right? Because what if I want to send you some information and I have the key? Won't I just have to give you the key? And if we're in the real world and we're spies, maybe that's possible. We meet up at some chess tournament mm-hmm. or we meet up at some secret restaurant and I pass you the key. And that would be fine if this was the real world. But if we're acting online and we don't know each other, then that sounds pretty problematic because if I have to send the key over to you, I would have to send it over to you probably in like plain text because otherwise, how would you know it's not scrambled to begin with, right? Um, and then we're, we have the whole problem of what if the key gets intercepted and then anything can be descrambled, right? Um, so we have this really interesting scheme called public key cryptography where instead of there just being one key, we use algorithms that actually have two keys. And so every person involved or every machine involved in public key cryptography has both what's called a public key and a private key. And the two keys act together. And here's how it works. Anything you scramble using your private key, which is the key you don't give out to anyone else, can be descrambled using your public key. But anything that you scramble using the public key can be descrambled using the private key as well. So they work together um, as a as a key set, as a key pair, and you need them both to actually have effective public key cryptography. So let's think about this scheme. Now you have my public key, and I scramble some information using my private key. When I send it over to you, you can descramble it, and that proves it really came from me which is great. It's great because that that you, only things that were encrypted with my private key can be descrambled using my public key so I can verify my identity. Now, I want to send you something secret. Okay, so I use your public key, which you've given to me and you've just published everywhere for anyone to use. I send it to you and only you will be the only person in the world able to descramble it because you have the matching private key and you've kept that to yourself. Nobody else in the world has that private key. So there's a way for me to both send and receive information and also to verify my identity using public key and private key pairs. And so when we're connecting to a website, we're actually exchanging these uh, key pairs. When I connect to a website, I give to it my public key and that allows it to send me information that was scrambled 
using my public key that only I can then decrypt. And it they also send me their public key. And that allows me to scramble information that nobody else but the website can descramble. So it allows us to send things in both directions by just exchanging the public keys and keeping the private keys completely to ourselves. And so this is how most modern encryption on the internet works is with this scheme called public key cryptography. And it's really clever, this idea of having not just one key, but having two separate keys that work together in a pair, one of which can be published to anyone and one of which must be kept to ourselves. Now, the only flaw in the system is if someone does get access to the private key, of course, then they can descramble anything that was supposed to be secret and intended for us. How do public keys or, and private keys relate to passwords? Passwords are interesting because they're what we want to do with a one-way encryption scheme. So when we store a password, of course, when we're first transmitting it, we're going to use some kind of secure connection. So some kind of public key cryptography connection to the server that we're connecting to that's ultimately going to store it so that it's not being sent in plain text. Then when it gets to the server, we actually want to scramble it and then not be able to descramble it again. So we store it in a totally garbage form. And anything that we encrypt, if you just saw the raw encrypted data, the encrypted data looks like garbage to the human eye. And it really is. Um, it's not something that we can make any sense of. It's not something that you can discern any pattern in. If you could, then it wouldn't be a very good encryption scheme. What we do with passwords is we go one way. We, we turn into this garbage encrypted piece of information. And then there's no way to actually descramble it. But what there is, is the possibility of then taking the same password again, going through the same scheme and getting the same garbage. And then if the two pieces of garbage match up, that means that the person entered the right password. Why is that good? Because if it's in the database as total garbage and not able to be descrambled, then someone who gets access to the database doesn't actually get access to the original password. So the original password is just something that can turn into that garbage, but it's not something that we can come back to from the garbage. And so that's a really, really nice thing because it means that it makes our databases of passwords inherently secure. It means that unless we happen to guess the right password, we're never going to be able to figure out what that garbage actually came from. So it's, it's a one-way um, transaction in a sense. So there's different types of encryption. There's the encryption that's needed for sending information. There's encryption, one-way encryption with, with your passwords. I'm sure there are others. It's This is a pretty broad tool that's used with different algorithms being used in different ways. Right. And so I think, I think we've talked about at least three different kinds here. So there's encryption where you just have a single key. And then if you have that key, you can both scramble and descramble. There's public key cryptography where you have a key pair, where you have a public key that anyone can have access to, and you have a private key that just the, um, that just the person who can descramble has access to, or the person who wants to verify their identity has access to. And then you also have one-way encryption where we're just scrambling something, and then we're matching up whether when we scramble it again, we get the same garbage output. So yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of encryption algorithms and different kinds of encryption schemes. And we use different ones for different kinds of opportunities uh, where we want to have something be private and secure. Now, I do want to mention a few more of those opportunities. So I mentioned earlier uh, payment on the internet. That's, of course, the most obvious one, right? Where we obviously don't want people having our private information. Another thing, if we, I mentioned medical records. I mentioned information at work. But there's a couple other interesting ones. One is blockchain. 
which is this new technology from the last decade or so that's used for things like Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is actually built out of an encryption algorithm, not because we keep every transaction private. Actually, on the contrary, all Bitcoin transactions are part of a huge ledger that actually tells you from what wallet to what wallet they were happening in. But it actually enables the whole scheme of how Bitcoin verifies a transaction is legitimate. And so just like we can use encryption for verification of passwords, we can use encryption for verification of transactions. Um, and so encryption actually enables the entire idea of Bitcoin. Another really important thing encryption is used for is identity verification. So if I want to actually prove that I am who I say I am. And so this goes back to that public key scheme we were talking about earlier. If I encrypt something, you remember that the, the private key and the public key can only work together. So things encrypted with the private key can only be decrypted using the public key and vice versa. So if I encrypt something using my private key, that absolutely proves that it's me because only me, who's the only holder of the private key, can make something that can then get decrypted with the public key. So if I send you some information and it can get decrypted using my public key, that proves it actually came from me. So this is really important because all the time we use things and we need to be able to say for sure that I'm really the one using it, right? It, how terrible would it be if when we used a social network, um, somebody else could post something and it looked like it came from us, right? Or how terrible would it be if we had a secure uh, voice connection to somebody else and it was actually coming from a third party? So being able to verify your identity is, a, is another really important aspect of encryption. So what is the way for someone to break encryption? Well, the good news is that most of the modern algorithms used, to the best of our knowledge, can't be easily broken. Um, so the, our estimates are that it would take so much computing time to try to reverse most of the modern algorithms that it's, for lack of a better term, impossible. Uh, and what I mean by that is possible in any kind of reasonable amount of time, so it's not even worth trying. Now, on the other hand, there are older algorithms that have gone out of favor because they have been broken. Of course, there's people all the time trying to break these encryption schemes because they want to be able to have access to all this private information. And I'm mostly talking about criminals, but of course, governments too. Governments want to get access to other governments' information or private individuals' information too sometimes. We want to be sure that we're using a recent encryption algorithm or encryption algorithm that's still known to be secure whenever we encrypt information. Now, there's a couple other elements to this. One element is that there might be new technology in the future that'll render some of our current encryption algorithms no longer so secure. One of those is quantum computers. This is a whole new way of thinking about computing. Instead of, we're th instead of thinking about computing in um, the traditional terms of bits, we think about them in qubits and they're in quantum states and it's all very complicated and beyond my own understanding to tell you the truth. But one of the things that quantum computing would enable is certain encryption algorithms to be broken a lot more easily than they're broken today. And so that's a real concern because there is a lot of research into quantum computing. Some progress does seem to be being made and it's possible in the next decade that we'll have more advanced quantum computers that will be able to break some of our current encryption schemes, which would of course be a big problem for everything that we do online. So that's something to watch. But for the most part, if you're using a modern encryption algorithm, it is for, to the best of our current knowledge, 
pretty much unbreakable. Um, sometimes there's rumors or concerns that some kind of big, powerful entity like the NSA actually knows how to break certain encryption algorithms. But actually, the NSA does a lot of research into creating new encryption algorithms too. So they're kind of on both sides of it. But to the best of our knowledge, most of our current encryption algorithms are pretty much unbreakable. And they're all publicly published. So that, that the math for how to do them is all out there. So it's not like you can outlaw them because it's already been published. Everyone already knows how to do these encryption schemes. The all, There's tons of open source implementations of all these encryption schemes. So it's not like we can just take the genie out of the bottle and um, now make these secret again. But we'll maybe get more into that when we talk about some public policy implications of encryption. What about with the password? I guess one way to break encryption would be for someone to just guess our passwords. Right. So we talked about earlier how passwords are usually encrypted using a one-way scheme. So Yes, uh, we see them as garbage, but if we have the original one, of course, that's the whole point is we can recreate the garbage to prove that it's the right password. So if you happen to guess it correctly, of course, uh, you, you can get the original password. So the question is, can we just guess passwords? So can we just take a big dictionary or just try every possible combination? Well, that's why websites are always asking you to use secure passwords, to use passwords that are long enough, because then it's too hard to guess them. If there's enough different letter combinations and the, there's enough different length of letters that you have to go through, then it is very hard to guess. In fact, it would take so long to guess that for a truly secure password, the amount of computing time, even on our super fast computers, would just take way too long to figure it out. The problem is a lot of people don't use such secure passwords. If you use a common password, the first thing that password breaking software does is it searches through a long list of all the common passwords. And believe it or not, that'll get a lot of hits on almost any password database. And so you have to be really careful when you create a password to use a truly long and secure password. And I would recommend to all our listeners that they use a password manager that automatically inserts secure passwords and remembers them for them so that they're not getting into a situation where they're using too common a password that could be easily guessed. And also it's nicer too, because you don't actually have to remember everything. Um, the password manager remembers them and creates new ones for you automatically. So we've been seeing in recent years a lot of news about encryption and um, court cases around that. I'm thinking of one a few years ago of Apple versus the FBI. Yeah, absolutely. If you remember in that case, there was a terrorist who committed an atrocity in California and his iPhone was actually found after the case and the FBI wanted to decrypt it. And they asked Apple, will you please help us? And they kind of compelled them to. And Apple actually went in court and said, we shouldn't be compelled to have to go write a whole new version of our operating system that's going to allow this backdoor so that the FBI can get through. And it's also dangerous to do that because that means that then that backdoor is out there in the wild and who knows if it could get into bad hands. So the debate was really about, can't, A, can we compel a company to write de novo software for us to do an investigation? What's de novo software? New, new software for us to do an investigation. But also, should we even be writing versions that have these flaws in them or that can break through this encryption? Because that might put everybody at risk. I think that was a piece of this case that some people are, took a little while to really wrap our heads around is that Apple didn't actually have a way into the phone the way it was made at that point because of encryption. That's exactly right. So Apple could not just flip a switch and get access to that phone. They would have actually had to break their own software or built a workaround around their own software security mechanisms to allow the FBI access. 
And, you know, that there really is a big debate to be had about encryption because it does stop law enforcement and government from having access to our communications, including access to bad people's communications. But we have to think about if we put those backdoors in, if we have ways around our encryption, um, what does that really mean? That means mainly, in my opinion, that good people would then be able to be compromised by criminals because all of these algorithms are out there in the public domain. They're all out there in open source software implementations. And so anyone can anytime go and encrypt something in a way that's unbreakable for anyone else to read. And so then just in consumer level products from Apple, Facebook, you know, Microsoft, whatever, are we going to have it broken? And then for all the terrorists are just going to use the open source ones that are not broken. And so the only people who are really going to benefit are the criminals if we go and stop uh, us having foolproof encryption in consumer products. And we've seen regular people get hurt by, you know, breaches into um, software, into their um into their files and things like that when people aren't doing those auto updates that we are supposed to get or um, certain keeping up with the security that's needed for their computers. Right. We have security problems all the time in software. Now imagine that we're purposely putting them in there so that they can be exploited by the government. Um, now who Do you not think the bad people are going to find those exploitations as well and take advantage of us? Absolutely. So I am personal opinion and the opinion of most security experts is that we should not be putting any kind of backdoors or allowing any kind of entity, even if well-intentioned, to be able to have a way around our encryption schemes. And I want to emphasize again that to the best of our knowledge, the encryption algorithms that we have are unbreakable using today's technology. And that means that they're already out there, already open and available. And so even if you outlaw them or insist that there's backdoors, that still means that everyone can still get access to the ones that don't have backdoors. So there's really no good reason to be making public policy that insists on backdoors or ways around our encryption. Although I totally understand why people want to have the ability for law enforcement to get into bad people's phones. We all do. But unfortunately, what comes with putting that mechanism in there is, a, is an even worse situation than what we have right now. When we think about all the you know, sensitive information that we keep on our devices nowadays, it's so important that we have control over who gets that and who has access to that information. I think now more than ever, and I can only see that continuing. Right. We have the most personal devices in the world in the form of our smartphones. They probably know more about you than you do. You know, they have AI technology on them that kind of predicts what app you're going to use next. You've, I'm sure you've seen that before. They have technology in there that predicts where you're going to go next, um, when you need to start uh, doing a new activity in order to have it done in time. I mean, they know so much about you. And we want to make sure that they're truly a secure encrypted environment. And in fact, our iPhones today and most Android devices are by default completely encrypted. So that unless somebody has your passcode, your fingerprint, your face, they really cannot access any of the contents of your device. So encryption is protecting you every day. It's protecting you every time you make a transaction on the web, every time you pay for something. It's protecting you every time you communicate with a friend, every time you communicate with a lover. It's protecting you every time you do your work. It's protecting you every time that you're keeping a company secret. And so we really should be appreciative of how important this technology is and how enabling it is of so many facets of our lives. So is there anything else do you think our listeners should know to really understand encryption? 
Well, obviously, they could go and study how these encryption algorithms work at a mathematical level, and I think that would be pretty interesting to some of them. But for most of them, I hope we've at least expressed to them that you use encryption every day, even if you don't realize it, and that it really enables you to do almost anything that you do on the web, um, but it also enables you to do a lot of things just on your own device as well in a safe and secure way. And so we really should appreciate it more, uh, how important it is and not be um, not be afraid of it or that, that it's something that um, is enabling bad behavior because it's also enabling a huge amount of good behavior. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us. We love having you here every week. Don't forget to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. It really helps people find out about the show. Or if you're on a podcast player like Overcast or CastBox, leaving us a little like on the episode, a little star, really helps other people find out about us. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? Our handle's at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.